All right, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. And Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay down, and he lay, and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto, them, unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? Those are some of the saddest questions you're going to see in the Bible. And then verse 9 is where we'll stop. And he said to them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea in the dry land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather around it. Lord, I pray this time would be profitable. I also pray for the next hour coming up. Lord, I pray for those who have been invited. I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, that they'd make that decision today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, this is going to sound strange at first, but I'm going to ask for some participation. Who would be willing to share what is one of your favorite attributes of God? One of your favorite characteristics of God. I'll share one of mine. One of, the, one of the things that is so comforting to me is this, that God is truth. I love that. I, I am so assured of that. I love that when I go to God, I know he's giving me the truth. That when I read his word, I know I'm getting the truth. In a world that is every other answer, I'm glad there's something steady to stand on. Well, would somebody else be willing to say, yes, Faithful to keep his promises. Absolutely. God is faithful. Long-suffering. Long I, am, I am very thankful for that one as well. And that is one that is easy to forget about, but oh, he is long-suffering. Anybody else? Yes, Rick. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And right behind you, Miss Campbell. My shepherd. shepherd. Wonderful. Love. love. God is love. And don't let the world confuse that. And definitions are important. God is love, though. Anybody? Blessings? Yes. Absolutely. Anybody else? Patience. I heard patience. And then the provider. Absolutely. And I'll throw out a last call. Anybody else? I don't think I'm missing. Yes. He, yes, he's a giving God. I, I mean, how many times do we just go about the day and we don't realize just how much we have? It's, it, you really could never stop thanking God. Nor, I think, should we ever stop thanking God. Now, how about this? This is one of my favorite as well, that God's jealous. I love that passage, that I serve a jealous God. 
and jealous in the exactly right way, that he knows exactly what is best for me. By the way, what's best for me? It's him. That God's best for me. His way's best for me. How about this, though? And I'm going to throw this out, and this is a buzzword in Christian talk today. God is sovereign. Is he not? I absolutely agree. He is absolutely sovereign. He has complete control. He has the complete right. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one above him. He is sovereign. Now, I throw that out there with a hesitation because anytime you say sovereignty, you almost have to put a disclaimer on it because there is such a large movement that takes that one word, and I mean they run with it. And they run as far as they possibly can with it. it there is a movement that since God is sovereign... He, he must be sovereign to make every single decision that has ever happened in the course of history. I am not a fan of that. I, I am not a fan of the thought that God has decreed every single deed because God is not the author of sin. And the argument comes then, well, if God's, not so, well, if God's sovereign, he must. And I say what a low, low, low view of sovereignty. And I mean that. What a low view of sovereignty. Let me put it this way before we get into it anymore. Are, are mayors coming? Would anybody in their right mind, if somebody had their car broken into last night, and they see the mayor, I can't believe you let that happen. Why on earth would you blame her, right? What a nonsensical thing to do. If you walked into a classroom, and a teacher, forgot, a teacher was teaching, and a student forgot to do their homework, I can't believe you let him not do his homework. Excuse me? I, I, I mean, right? And yet, there's a whole movement that tries to pin every single decision onto God because he's sovereign. He, my God is so sovereign that you can reject his plan, that you can reject his wishes for you, you can reject that his offer of salvation to you, and his goal is still going to be accomplished. That's what I call sovereignty. Uh, A.W. Tozer used an illustration like this. He, he, he compares it to a shipmaster on a boat. Now, the boat is going to go from point A to point B. That's the job, right? Is the shipmaster in charge of every single person on that boat? In a way, yes. But is he responsible for every decision that that person makes? Absolutely not. Now, he has, the he has the authority to punish and do as he wants, right? But nobody, if somebody had a bad thought, nobody would say, I can't believe that shipmaster did that. It, you know what the shipmaster is going to do? He is so in control that he's going to get that boat from point A to point B. And as Christians, we serve a sovereign God. So much in control that when he tells us he wants something done, he's going to get it accomplished. Sometimes we can be willing. Sometimes we can be eager. Sometimes we can be excited, and we can be used by God in a great and powerful way. Sometimes, though, God has to use Christians, and it almost seems like he's dragging their feet along the way. Now, there have been thousands of sermons preached on Jonah, and if you know anything about the city of Nineveh, you know it's a very wicked place. So wicked, in fact that they said one of the forms of execution, because they didn't just believe in ending a life, they believed in torture, was they would bury an individual 
all the way to their shoulders, so just their head was poking out of the ground. And this is sickening. And their form of execution, for one of the ways, is said to be, was just to kick that individual until they died. I'm I, I, just putting into picture what these people did. They were angry. They were bloodthirsty at times. They were wicked. So before we jump onto Jonah's case, I would have been afraid to go there too. Can, can I just admit that? And can I be so brave to say, you would probably be afraid to go there too. Why? Because there's not many missionaries lining up to go to a country like Yemen, where if you're found out to be a Christian, you have every right in the law to put that person down. Hmm. But God's still calling people there. It, there are people that are persecuted every country all over this world for standing for their faith far more than we'll ever really have to understand. And I'm thankful for that. But I know this. Before I get onto Jonah's case, it's a good question for me. Well, would I go? To be honest, if I'm Jonah, Tarshish might not be far enough away. If I'm just being completely honest, I'd probably be running much, much further away. So before I even go any further than that, God's in control, yes. Does God love me? Absolutely. We were going through the attributes of God. Is he truth? Yes. Is he love? Yes. Is he jealous for me? Yes. Is he patient? Is he long-suffering? Absolutely. But just don't send me there. And how many of us have a Nineveh in our life? How many of us are... I don't do that. I, I interned with a guy who, who I, I'll never forget this. We were interning in Michigan, and one of the older men came to us, we, and uh, once a week we'd help with the yard work. It was a bigger church. We're, we're not in the desert, so imagine everything around you being grass. It just takes a little bit longer to mow. And one of the older men came to us, and he said, would, would you guys be willing, or could you guys please clean out the gutters? Mind you, the man who asked us, this was about 70 years old. I, I wouldn't want him on a ladder cleaning out the gutters. One of the guys I was interning with, I don't do gutters. I don't do gutters. Excuse me. How many Christians do we have, though? I don't do that. Oh, no, 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 I, I hear what you're saying. I don't do that. I'm not one of those Christians. I don't do soul winning. Not, not for me. I, I, I don't do a strong prayer life. That's, that's somebody else's spiritual gift. I don't do tithing. That's not mine. Not my gift. I don't do teaching God's word. And I'm not saying everybody should be signed up to teach a class. But we should be ready, I think. I, I firmly believe everybody should have somewhat of an understanding enough to understand when they read the Bible to be able to teach something to somebody else. That we should be able to give an answer for it. I firmly believe that. I had a professor that told me, you don't really know something until you can teach it. And I have learned that vividly teaching the junior church class. Because if I could throw out a little thing, you, you, I don't have my, my Christian terms that we use. You don't have that to fall back on with a kid. Because then they ask, well, what does that mean? Oh, you have to explain it in the term of a third grader. I mean, you really start to learn exactly what those words mean. And we're living in a culture of, I don't do that. Mm, that's a shame. That shouldn't be found in church. Uh, 
God can call my children to do anything but missions. Well, who, who's the king? Now, he's not going to force it. If, if I've seen anything in the Bible, God, God, God is, did not make us robots. He, he did not make us to where every time we do something, if we do it wrong, we're, we're immediately corrected either. Because uh, God is long-suffering. He is patient with me. He does love me enough that he actually wants a relationship with me. And it's time that Christians put away first the I don't do's. Is there something in your life where, where you're looking at God and said, I won't? Oh. And, and I could go on a list and list, but here's the reality, is the Holy Spirit likely brought it up to you. And, I, and the Holy Spirit's much better at doing his job than I will ever be. Let's keep looking. One of the saddest verses here, though, so we see jo Jonah run. Then we see this. Jonah completely forget who he is. Look at verse 8 with me again. And they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? That would be an awful hard question to answer as Jonah right now. And this is what he says, and he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought, for the sea wrought and was temptuous. And we find Jonah, and listen, God is sovereign. And we see one, he's sovereign over the world. We, we see one, and next, he's sovereign over our lives. God has the absolute right, the absolute right to command us where to go and what to do. He has the absolute right to convict you when he does and to command your heart to talk to that person. Or command your heart when you do something you know you should not do to prick it and make that sin known to you. He has the absolute right. And it's easy at times if we're distracted, if we're afraid, if we let something come in the way. Whatever it is that I don't do come in the way, we forget exactly whose we are. And Jonah, it comes to a point where he's faced exactly with that question. Who are you? What do you do? And for most men, that conversation stops right there. Hi, what's your name? What do you do for a living? All right, let's go. And we'll see each other next week, and that will go on for the rest of our church lives. But who are you? What do you do? Why are you on this ship? And he has to come to an end of himself. I'm a Hebrew. And I, that next phrase is shocking to me. And I fear the Lord. But I'm running from him. I fear the Lord. How, how many of us have been stuck in that situation where God has to remind us exactly whose we are? Oh, yeah. I'm a Christian. I can't live that way. I'm a Christian. I, I, I shouldn't be talking that way. You know what? Those decisions really aren't mine to make. And Jonah's running from the Lord, and the only people that have a sense enough to know that you shouldn't run from the Lord are the ones who are pagans. I mean, I find that absolutely fascinating. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, 
And, and, and my question is simple. Do you really fear him then? Do you have the option to fear the Lord and reject what he says? Now, now, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it isn't so much just shaking and trembling, afraid that he's going to strike us down. We, we, we see also a great deal of reverence. But also this, I do have a legitimate fear of the Lord because he is so great. He is so powerful. He is so mighty. And I fear his hand of blessing coming off of me. I'm afraid of that. Well, why do I walk with him? Because I want him to bless me. I, I want that relationship close. How much do I value it, though? What would it take for Jonah, it was Nineveh. For us, what would it take for us to start fearing something else over what we feared the Lord? Jonah feared Nineveh more than the Lord at the moment. He was running away. If God called a family member to the missions, would we accept it? I've heard it before. I, I, I've heard it before. I've heard, kid, I've heard kids be told, don't be a missionary. Don't go there. Don't waste your life there. Mm. I, 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 I've heard of things that get in the way and distract. I, I, I've heard Christians, and, and I'm not picking on this one individual in particular, but just like that one intern, I don't do gutters. Mm. Mm. What is it that we're pointing our finger at God saying, I don't do that. Jonah, I don't do Nineveh. Well, do you fear him then? Do you really fear him then? Is he really Lord of Lords over your life then? How can he be? How, how can people look at Bible Baptist Church and see a group of believers if we are having something else dominate and run our lives? How can, we look at, how can they look at us and say, that's a bunch of Christians right there? That's a bunch of believers. I, I, I think of verses like Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good to them that love God. And I think about who Paul was writing to. People who are about to be persecuted more heavenly, heavily than I could ever imagine. And that's one of the verses that they have to look at. All things work together for good. And on the outside, I could look at and say, really? They, looked, they, they work together for good? When they're being thrown into the Colosseum and fed to animals? That's, that's the group of Christians that he was writing to. To, to ones who Nero would take and cover their body in wax to light his gardens with. If you have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I would encourage you to do so. It's a heavy read. It's a very hard read. But to hear what some of these Christians will go through, and then sometimes my mind goes back to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. How could Joseph look at his brothers who sold him to slavery, lied to his dad, took the best years... Now, now, think about this. Joseph had a wonderful relationship with his parents. Right? And that relationship was gone. It was stolen from him. To the point that when he saw his brothers, he had to ask, is, is dad even alive? All those years, you can't get back. And he looks at him and tells them that God meant it for good, what they meant for evil. That, that he would be sold as a slave, go to prison, be forgotten. 
live in a foreign country where they probably didn't speak his same language, where people, everything was different, people treated him wrongly, and he's looking at him and saying, God meant it for good? How? Joseph knew who was in control. And here's the point with sovereignty. It's not that God is decreeing every single action, every single sin. No, 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 no. It's this, that in the midst of a world who is actively rejecting God, in the midst of a people who hate God, and by the way, hate you because you love God, that God's still in control. That that at the point in the book of Revelation where you read, where they gather to war against God, that it's going to be over in seconds because he's still in control. So how can Joseph be calm when he's a slave, when he's in prison, when he's in a strange land in Egypt, because God's still in control? How could those Roman Christians, and what was amazing is they'd say this, that the blood of a martyr was like a, like a seed, and everyone that died, it seemed like two more Christians popped up, and that they would go singing praises into their execution. How could they do that? Because they understood this. God's still king. And we, we mentioned this briefly yet last week, that, and that even if they took their life, God's still king. And by the way, the only power they have is to take your life. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And Christian, the good news is if you are no longer in your sin, the sting of death means nothing. And that's how a Christian could go and face the animals in the Colosseum, face the persecution, face the reality that they're never going to see their family again. That, that's how they could go because they, they understand this. God's king. If he's king, you can do whatever you'd like. You're just sending me to Jesus sooner. And far better, far better for them. Paul was not writing in jest when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was an absolutely serious verse. You understand that for us too. That when a Christian passes, it really is a celebration because we move on from what is old and what is broken and what is wrong and wicked to absolute perfection. What more can anybody do to us? But we get distracted. And just like Jonah, and by the way, I'm just like him as well. Just like Jonah, we run and we hide and we run and we say, God, no, 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 no. You weren't supposed to call me here. Uh, no, 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 they, they were not supposed to hear this message. I can't go there. Some people speculate that the people of Nineveh would have killed his parents. I don't see where there's evidence for that. But I see Nineveh being wicked and evil enough that I wouldn't want to go there. We're going to skip over chapter 2, but in chapter 2, Jonah prays and God hears his cry. And then look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. We're still in the book of Jonah. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city, 
a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the, Nineveh, the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And Jonah's finally in Nineveh. God's worked on his heart. Jonah seems to have repented. Jonah goes into the city, and the city was so large it would take three days to walk through, and he gives his message, and his message was an incredibly short one. It was an incredibly brief one. As far as we know, the only thing he proclaimed was this. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. An eight-message word. Eight-word message. And that's all it took. And here's the next thing we got to see. So God's sovereign over the world. He's sovereign over my life. And this means this, too. He has the right to offer salvation to everybody. Jonah didn't like this part. Bitterness is a very dangerous thing. Bitterness is an incredibly dangerous thing. It is far easier to get angry at somebody than compassionate for them. Far easier. Much more natural reaction. Much more natural emotion. And Jonah's in Nineveh, and I think, based on the next chapter, that he probably enjoyed the message he was giving to the people of Nineveh. I don't think he really hated giving this message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wow. I don't think he had a big problem giving that message. But the people of Nineveh were sure thankful for it. You see the reaction. They, they start to repent. And look at verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn, turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger and we perish not? And just like that, we see something that we talk about happening, that we pray about happening. Do we always want it to happen? Here's the reality. Do you, do you understand this? God can save anybody. I, I, I say this completely serious. God can save Gavin Newsom. 100% serious. He can save the president. He can save any world leader. He has that power. He has offered them salvation. 1 John 2.2 is still active. That he is the propitiation for my sins. For our sins. And not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I, I do not hold to a view that God saves some. That, that God's blood is good enough for some and not good enough for others. I cannot and will not hold to that. I met people in college who held to a theory like that and I still to this day don't understand it. That God would somehow choose you and you and you and you and you to be saved. And sorry, Brother Becker. And that is a legitimate view that is going out in Christianity today. And I hate it. I, I even had a song I would use with some of those people. Jesus loves the chosen children. All the chosen children in the world. 
you and you and oh, not you. Jesus loves the chosen few. What a, what a poor view of God. What a diminishing view of God. God can save. And he's strong enough to save. And he's reaching out and offering salvation. And he's not weaker if somebody rejects him for it. He just didn't create him to be a robot. And also this, God wants to save that person. That if we're honest, sometimes we don't want to see them get saved. We want to see them get what they have coming to them. It's easy. That's an easy trap to fall into. It's much easier to fall into the trap of wanting to see that person get their just desserts. It's much easier to see, oh, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. Well, what did God tell us in Micah 6, 8? Told us to do justly. In fact, I'm going to turn there just for a second because it is so good, I do not want to mess it up. Micah 6, 8, you don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'm going to read it. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Sometimes we get that order mixed up. Oh, we love justice. We love now that we're saved. Now that we're clear, we love seeing people get what's coming to them. And we'll do mercy. When God really forces us to, we'll, we'll do mercy. Oh, look to God that we had the heart that when somebody didn't get what was coming to them, praise God, because he didn't give me what I deserve. Praise God, he forgave them and he forgave me too. Oh, I am so tired of news articles that are written just with the point, and it goes both ways. So-and-so gets destroyed. Okay. Look at this person's big gaffe. Look at, look at, that. Look at this person's corrupt life. Look at, yeah, people are sinners, and they do ugly, sinful things. I, I long for seeing this, though. So-and-so comes to Christ. And you say, you didn't see what they did here, 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 and I don't care. Because God forgave me of so much more. That how on earth could I hold it in? And just like Jonah, you're going to see, he sees a people of Nineveh coming to Christ, coming to God. And do you think he's excited? Do you think he's eager? Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Jonah could. Jonah could. Jonah could have told him. Drives me nuts when I see that. Jonah could have told them. He stuck to his message, though. Oh, he told them. He told them that Nineveh was going to be overthrown. I, I look at this. God can save anybody. Do we live like it, though? Are we eager to see it? We'll see a celebrity comes to Christ or, or makes the profession, and I don't know their heart. You know what I pray? I pray they get out of the spotlight and get some discipleship. I mean, can you imagine if somebody came to Christ and then we handed them a microphone? I wouldn't want that. Right? I, and all of a sudden, like the, the investigation goes on. Well, they did this the next day. They did this the next day. Yeah, new Christians fumble around. My little girl's just now learning how to walk. I don't expect her to be very good at it. She'll get about 
10 steps now is, is, is pretty common, and then she'll, then she'll fall down and get up again. How embarrassing would it be for me to be making fun of her? Right? God's good enough to forgive your past and mine. He's also good enough to forgive the sins of the entire world. Meaning this, when somebody gets saved, we don't need to go into hypercritical mode. We, we, we don't need to follow them around. I uh, saw on your social media you had a couple bad likes. Real Christian when I'd done that. When they talk wrong. Huh, real Christian wouldn't talk like that. Well, when they come to church dressed in a shirt that might be inappropriate. Huh, you're saved. Now, we're not saying it. We might be thinking it. And we also might be showing it much, much more than we really realize with our eyes and our faces as well. Oh, what did God that we'd be so excited when somebody gets saved? And what did God that when we see that younger couple that's, that, that is clearly struggling, that instead of talking about it, somebody went to them and said, hey, you know what, we had some struggles too. Why don't you come to lunch with us? Well, when you see the younger Christian that is having a hard time, we go to them instead of just waiting for them to fix everything for us and say, hey, you know what? In my Christian life, I ran into the exact same problem. Why don't I help you out? I'm praying for you. Well, when we see those teenagers say and do immature things like teenagers do, and I'm not excusing it. But the reality is, young Christians do things that young Christians shouldn't do. Same with older Christians, too. But when we see it, what's stopping us from going to them and saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, you know what? You can tell them no, while at the same time letting them know that you still love them in a hard way still. Some of the best ways I've heard people tell me that they love me were some of the hardest no's I ever received. I, I remember climbing the stairs of the sanctuary when I was like, five or six, one of the older men in the church, they don't do that, I about fell off the stairs. And he laughed and patted me on the head. You know what I know? He didn't hate me. There's a reason. I didn't understand why at the moment. I just, every time I walked by those stairs, mm -mm, not this time, I look around, is he here? But you know what I knew? He, he cared enough about me uh, eventually, and he cared enough about the church that got in place to him that he wanted to take care of it. There are younger Christians all over. There are younger believers all over desperately looking. There are younger couples desperately looking for help, and they won't admit it. They won't admit it. So would to God that we would initiate the contact, that we'd go to them and tell them that we care about them, that we're praying for them, that we go to them, praying for you. Love to get coffee sometime. Are we waiting for everybody to come to us? Or are we looking and actively looking to build up? Look at verse 10. And God saw their works, and they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he just missed the point entirely. Don't miss the point. Second, last thing. By the way, I haven't said it, but if you know what it is, I'm talking about Calvinism when I'm talking about that other world thought. I don't like Calvinism at all. If if that hasn't come out yet, I I don't care for it. Um, And that's a great verse right there. Would God have destroyed the city of Nineveh? Absolutely. Absolutely. So did God just change his mind? In a way. Here's this. He's... When you're talking to an individual who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, are they on their way to hell? Absolutely. John 3.17, he that believes not is condemned already. You're condemned already. So is he changing his mind when that person asks and cries out for him to save them? Just just like here. And Jonah missed, oh, I, I... And the point is this, Nineveh didn't last that much longer after. Nineveh would go a couple generations. And then they'd back in their wicked ways. And I can't help but think, one of the biggest what-ifs for me in the Bible, what if Jonah stayed and taught? What if Jonah stayed and taught? The people didn't receive a lot. They received enough. They didn't receive a lot. God is sovereign over this world. He's in control. Over your life, he has the right. Over every other person, he wants to save them. One of, oh, would, would that we look at them the same way he looks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. Thank you, you've been so good to us. Lord, I pray for this next hour. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here who